This is episode 258 of the Stem Cell Podcast, The Musculoskeletal Axis, with Dr. Olivier Portier. Hey everybody, we are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Stem Cell Podcast, please rate us and leave a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Olivier Porquier from Harvard Medical School. He's on the podcast to talk about his research on the precursors of muscles and vertebrae, amongst other things. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news. That's coming right up. But first, let's talk about the ICCR annual meeting. We, of course, know that it's a globally recognized meeting for its exceptional scientific program, weaving together a broad spectrum of topics in stem cell biology, new technologies, and clinical applications to showcase the most compelling stem cell science. Visionary scientists from around the world will converge to present their latest research findings, uncovering new insights and approaches that accelerate progress. So be sure to join us for ISSCR 2024 coming up in Germany. Man, we're already talking about the ISSCR. I can't believe it, but uh, it piques my interest. I'm looking forward to that meeting, getting international rocking it in Hamburg. Arun, I can't wait. But before we get there, we got like seven or eight or maybe 15 shows we got to do. Let's start off the roundup today with a story about Gen Tonic, the miracle elixir from the Studer Lab. You know, this is a, a, a story like the continuation of story that's been years in the making. Um, you know, there've been previous efforts uh, toward this end. Um, and this particular story has been kind of cooking in review for a very long time. And it's about maturation, right? You know, in, in neuro specifically, this is a Lorenz story, but in, in neuro generally speaking, the whole idea of maturation, also the heart, Aruna, not to the heart. Um, but in neuro particularly, the idea of like cell intrinsic maturation rate during differentiation is key because a lot of these studies and uh, generating the neurons and particularly recapitulating the pathology of like disease and these modeling approaches, um, they require this long maturation time. Uh, and specifically in neurological disease and psychiatric disorders, uh, the, the pathology manifests in postnatal or adult stages. Um, and as, you know, manifests as things like dysfunction and synaptic connectivity or dendritic arborization or the electrophysiological function. So all these functional elements that underlie the disease, but they don't manifest until uh, way on, right? Um, and a lot of the cell maturation is dictated by the environment, of course, we know as developmental biologists. But what we found over the course of the last decade, which we've probably already known forever, just intuitively, is that there's a cell intrinsic maturation rate that prevails. Um, and it's species specific. It runs on these species specific molecular clock. And we all know humans took a, take a long time to cook, right? So the human neurons are going to take a relatively long time relative to these other species. And this is exemplified by these transplant studies, the seminal work from the Lorenz and other, other groups showing that cortical neurons, for example, transplanted into the human cortical neurons transplanted into the developing mouse brain. You could got to have nine months before they uh, show the mature adult-like uh, phenotype. 
and here very elegantly demonstrated in these transplant studies and rescue studies is that if you transplant mouse or pig or human midbrain dopamine neurons into the brain of Parkinsonian rats in this, you know, to induce this functional rescue, uh, you get the rescue for mouse, it's after four weeks, for pigs, it's after three months, and for humans, it's after five months. So yeah, it tracks, right? Uh, the developmental timing and intrinsic molecular clock in these species really dictates uh, how they're going to go and how they're going to mature. Um, but that's not good uh, for the disease modeling field because they want these things to manifest in a time scale that's amenable to experimentation and is practical uh, and less expensive, right? A lot of reasons to do it. Um, so Lorenz and other groups in, in studies before, I remember like almost maybe 10 years, I don't know, six, seven years ago, he had a story about like a, a tonic, so to speak, for accelerating maturation. This uh, story was about a uh, gen tonic, right? Um, and I think the interesting thing, there's a few interesting things here. Uh, it's a cocktail of these four factors, pretty simple. They shorten it to gen tonic, which patented already, probably making some money. Um, but uh, the key here in this study to me was the, the way they went about it. They had this image-based, a high-content image-based study um, where they looked at like MAP2 um, immunostaining. They looked at nuclear size morphology. They looked at immunostaining for these immediate early genes, um, but on a massive scale here, and maybe that's where they brought Shubin in. I don't know. Shubin Cheng's also on this paper from across the street at Wild Cornell. Um, where I am, Lorenz is across the street from us at MSK. And uh, presumably here in order to do the screening or perhaps for the beta cell differentiation, um, and I'll get to that. Bottom line here is that they developed this tonic using this you know, massive high content image-based assay. They identified these factors, showed that you could get um, maturation uh, trigger like a more a mature phenotype in terms of synaptic density, electrophysiology, also the transcriptomic profile. Um, and the other key point I think here was that they showed it was outside uh, of the neural lineage and non-neural lineages, melanocytes, pancreatic beta cells, as I alluded to. Um, it also was able to show uh, accelerated maturation of those. And I think that's, that's really the key here um, for me is that this like other studies before it is something in terms of a tool that might be applied across the board, not just for neural and disease modeling in that space, but also this may be fundamental to accelerating the clock um, across different cell types, Arun, you might be interested in. Um, and, you know, more fundamentally, conceptually, uh, there's probably some downstream studies there where it's like, how does this gen tonic, uh, how does it molecularly uh, cause that acceleration? Is it like the metabolism? You know, we've talked about on this on this show a few weeks back uh, about how metabolism really dictated that intrinsic clock. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of unanswered questions. I think this will lead up to uh, in terms of mechanism, but you know, fundamentally, it's an amazing tool that I think a lot of people are, are excited to get their hands on to try. But ironically, Arun, I mean, a lot of people probably have already tried this. The, the paper was submitted May 2021. It's been on bioarchives since June 2022. I mean, almost two years. What's going on in Nature Biotech with the review process? Or... Yeah, it's a, definitely a long review process. And like you said, it's been on bioarchive for a while. In fact, there are folks in my very department who have already tried this because it's been around for so long. Um, but it's a, it's a cool study worthy of being in Nature Biotech because of that. 
secondary application that you alluded to at the end there, you're not just talking about the maturation of the neurons, but these other cell types too. And that's really cool. I mean, most of these studies are really specifically focused on a single cell type, but anytime you can figure out a, a broadly applicable small molecule compound across multiple cell types, that's very powerful. And the analogy that I can make here is to something like a, a rock inhibitor, which is not just useful for survival in iPSCs, but a, a broad range of cell types too. Maybe they found something similar with their gentonic cocktail. I like the I like the name. Um, the the other thing to to allude to is you know obviously the the expertise of Shubing, your your neighbor there in New York City. She's had this tremendous expertise in not just uh, pancreatic beta cell differentiation, but this most recently these high content screens. And not everybody can do these, unfortunately. They are expensive, and getting these libraries are uh, a feat in itself. But uh, I think the exciting thing here is this imaging-based modality, this imaging-based screen could be used in the context of other cell types as well. Like, you know, you, there are certainly markers, visual markers for cardiomyocyte maturation, functional markers for maturation as well, and cardiomyocytes and electrophysiology too. So I can envision this approach, this exact approach being used for other cell types to find perhaps uh, other cocktails as well. Yeah. I mean, let's be clear, like the, the maturation, we're not getting like geriatric neurons here, anything like that, or even to the stage of, I would say, full maturation. I think there's a little bit of work to do to get to that point, but any push forward, I think is going to be key, um, especially as the, the, the modeling field matures. I think that there's a lot of benefit to be had across the board, but I, I, I want to circle back. And I don't know, we don't typically do this on the show, but I would love for somebody listening to the show to come weigh in and tell me how this makes sense, that this paper has been at Nature Biotech, presumably in late review for like a year and a half. You look at the bioarchive paper, it is virtually identical. All the results are pretty much the same. There's maybe one or two panels, additional experiments, calcium imaging maybe that they did to add, but I don't know. I, I am like vicariously frustrated uh, by by the, the the length of time that it took for this paper to get through. And I've had some experience in nature biotech myself, like over a decade ago where the review was, was way too long. They need some help over there. Uh, come on. Yeah, that's it's way too long. I think the review process in general is just becoming way too extended these days. Um, and it it hurts the the trainees, right? It hurts the first author here. I don't know if uh, first author here is Emiliano Hergenreiter. Um, I don't know if that's a postdoc or grad student, but regardless, I mean, we need these big publications in a specific time window to advance to the next stage of your career, right? I mean, having a publication like this sit around for three to four years is just not it's not good for anyone. So I think just, I agree with you. I think the review process just needs to be accelerated and we don't know what, ha what happened behind the scenes here. Maybe we can have Shubing or Lorenz on the show to talk more about it, but I agree with you. I think in, in general, this is just way, way too long of a process. So we'll shift gears to another Shubing Chen paper. Uh, she's also on this particular paper in, in addition to uh, the last author, Fong Cheng Pan. Over there, once again, Wow Cornell, your neck of the woods, first author here being uh, Joao Hua Duan. And this is a another screening-based approach. Again, that's why Xu Bing has her, her uh, co-authorship on this particular paper, um, cell stem cell paper titled Pancreatic Cancer Organoid Platform Identifies an Inhibitor Specific to Mutant KRAS. 
And perhaps the other reason, of course, Xu Bing's on this paper is this is a, a pancreas-related study. Of course, that's her expertise. So we know about KRAS mutations. They're some of the most famous mutations across cancer. And in particular, in pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, or PDAC, which is this devastating cancer. It's like the, I think, the number four leading cause of cancer deaths in, in the United States. And it's just a really severe prognosis. KRAS mutations are a big cause of these PDAC cases. And in fact, they're found in more than 90% of uh, pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma cases. And spe more specifically, a, a, a more specific type of KRAS mutation is the G12D and the G12-valine, uh, which are found in more than 90% of PDAC cases. So, so you need drugs that are targeting these specific mutations, the KRAS G12C or different types of mutations. Um, you know, Some of these drugs have been pretty successful. And this indicates that maybe we can develop more drugs targeting this exact uh, area of KRAS the, in terms of the amino acid composition. So here what they're doing is, again, a high-throughput screen with uh, uh, isogenic mouse pancreatic organoids that are either wild-type or actually contain common PDAC driver mutations, including a, a lot of those KRAS mutations. And these are representing both classical and basal pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. So they did, again, big screen, over 6,000 compounds. Actually, in, in the scale of small molecule compound screens, maybe that's not so big because some of these libraries can get up to a million compounds. So maybe a, a medium-sized, small-sized screen, I don't know, 6,000 compounds, and identified a particular compound called perhexylene malleate, which can apparently inhibit the growth and induce cell death, specifically of the pancreatic organoids that are carrying the KRAS G12D mutation. And the other cool thing is they demonstrate this, uh, this perhexylene malleate can function effectively to eliminate the pancreatic cancer cells in vitro and in vivo, and also in primary human PDAC organoids, which is probably why you know this got to the level of something like cell stem cell. And then they dove into the mechanism as to how this is exactly happening. The single cell RNA-seq, they found that maybe it's the cholesterol synthesis pathway um, that is being upregulated specifically in the KRAS mutant organoids, uh, including a specific uh, cholesterol synthesis regulator, SREB2, SREBB2, apologies. And so this perhexylene malleate can decrease the SREBB2 levels and reverse that KRAS mutant uh, upregulation of cholesterol synthesis. So that's a kind of a cool tail end mechanistic uh, identification, unraveling of how this uh, particular small molecule in this perhexylene malleate is actually functioning. It's regulating cholesterol synthesis, which is apparently hyper upregulated in the KRAS mutant cells. Um, and again, nice approach to identify a, a compound that can specifically target pancreatic cancer cells. And once again, and we said this before on the show, this is a severe, dire medical need. We need drugs that can effectively target pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. It is a major cause of cancer death here in the United States and around the world. So the work led by uh, Dr. Pan and Dr. Cheng are, you know, this is uh, this is really critical to helping solve the scourge, right? Yeah, a scourge with a particularly dreadful prognosis. Uh... And it seems to be the the one area of cancer where, and I know this is, uh, I'm not an expert here, so I'm speaking out of turn, but the least progress is, is being made. You know, we talk about, wow, we're curing cancer, but uh, pancreatic, not so much. And 
I think what we need and what we see here is uh, just a whole new drug. And I think that what's amazing about uh, this approach for me is I love the idea that this kind of this model system that was born out of pluripotent stem cells that maybe people thought was far-fetched. And I'm talking about just the organoid system, which existed, I know, and spheroids and all that. And in fact, arose originally uh, with adult stem cells with the famous intestinal organoid. But I just love the idea of how we've kind of gone circle back into a, a more traditional drug development paradigm using all of the, the the things that were promised, uh, not all, but many of those tools that were promised in this case, coming up with a, a, with a brand new drug that uh, acts in a really unique uh, way uh, by a unique mechanism, novel, that can be built on either way, either improve the drug, improve like bioavailability and efficacy of the drug and in, in vivo context leading up to clinical trials, presumably, we can hope. Um, but also just this idea of targeting the cholesterol synthesis um, and trying to come up with other other drugs or compounds that follow the same tack. I think that, that this story has it all for that reason. Um, not surprising. I mean, Xu Bing, by the way, put out like 10 papers in the time that it took that one Nature Biotech paper to, to get in and out of review. So uh, harping on that again, Arun, sorry, my <laughs> apologies. But you just can't help it. Um, anyway, yeah, this is this is another great story from Shuben. She's she's Shuben is my is like my my role model, uh, and an icon and a rock star to me. And I, I love everything she does. And she's just so nice. I've had so many great conversations with her. Just so just such a sweet person to talk to. And that's just the, the icing on the cake right there. But. I agree with you. I think this is a really cool idea, perhaps for, you know, not just de novo compound identification, but, and I, I think that's actually more what they did here was repurposing existing drugs that are out there, right? So this is 6,000 compounds that are known to be out there. They're, I don't think they developed anything de novo, but that's really cool. This idea of repurposing existing drugs, because perhaps um, in addition to the drugs, just being out there, they've already gone through that FDA regulation approval process. So perhaps they can be accelerated towards another clinical application because they've already been validated for their safety efficacy in other contexts before. Um, so I think a lot of potential for this sort of approach. Yeah, I'm glad you clarified that because it's not a, a brand new drug. It's it's better. It's a brand new application of a drug that's been well vetted. So as you said, uh, it's like a springboard. Uh, to clinical application and trial. So I, I guess, and I hope we won't have to wait too long. I know I'm not alone there. Um, going from the pancreas to uh, mother's milk here, uh, at least mouse, mouse mother's milk, talking about uh, mammary gland here and the development of more, I, I, I would say, uh, comprehensive mammary organoids. I think a lot of, of organoid spheroid uh, 3D cultures have been generated from mammary tissue, but this is a story on generating uh, mammary organoids that have multiple cell types and, and function from, in this case, mouse embryonic stem cells. And uh, the key here is like a focus on the ectoderm, right? In, in the ectodermal lineage, there've been a lot of organoids that have been generated, really sexy organoids, um, hair follicle, perhaps one of the lead there, uh, in terms of the, the the big splash it made with Carl Kohler at the ISSCR about three years ago, everyone went nuts seeing the hair come out of these organoids, although it was all 
curly and weird looking. It was still a major watershed, but um, yeah, inner ear, hair follicle, tooth organoids, lacrimal organoids, salivary gland organoids. These are all ectodermal derivatives that have been generated, uh, that have had 3D organoids generated um, from embryonic stem cells. But the mammary lineage, mammary organoids uh, from embryonic stem cells has been more challenging. As I said, uh, organoids have been generated from adult mammary gland or tumors, and those have been really important for understanding the biology of uh, adult stem cells within the mammary gland and also for modeling like cancerous transformation or, or the, the growth and activity of cancer in the, term, in the case of breast cancer organoids. Um, but of course, this doesn't give us much insight into the developmental biology of the, the, the mammary gland and lineage commitment uh, and all the cell types uh, that comprise uh, the mammary gland. Um, so in this case, uh, the group of Shyam Sharan at uh, National Cancer Institute in Frederick, Maryland, um, kind of played on the developmental similarity amongst the various ectodermal organoids, specifically uh, the fact that mammary glands are thought, I didn't know this, but are thought to have evolved from the hair-associated apocrine glands. You know how there's, this, you know, the the uh, glands associated with the hair follicle can produce all these, you know, sebaceous and all that stuff. Um, so it's thought that the mammary gland uh, evolved from this similar kind of structures. Um, and based on that similarity, uh, the Sharon group um, developed a, a differentiation approach that was derived from Carl Kohler. Uh, and he's uh, an author on this, actually. A couple from the back um, probably helped them with the protocols, clearly. And what they did is they adapted that a little bit by, by using the general protocol, but adding in signaling cues that are known to drive mammary gland development um, in the embryo. And they came up with this di differentiation approach that they call CUSTOM, uh, which stands for Curating Stem Cells to Generate Organoids of Mammary Lineage. Kind of kind of fits there with the acronym. Uh, and they did it. They, they generated these cells, they did some profiling, they did some single RNA-seq to show relative to the, the um, hair follicle differentiations that there were more of these mammary cell types. Uh, they showed that in Matrigel, uh, they could generate milk proteins in vitro. They had uh, all the cell types, mammary-specific epithelial cells, fibroblasts and adipocytes, uh, as I said there, by the single cell seq. They call these things... Uh, multi-lineage ESC-derived mammary organoids, another acronym here, MEMOs. Um, and these MEMOs, they underwent ductal morphogenesis, as I said, produced the milk proteins in, in, in vitro, and uh, in, in nude mice, they could reconstitute the mammary gland. They had some really nice pictures showing these TD tomato, which tracked the mammary glands, like really nice arborization and the development of the keratins and all that stuff. Um, and then, uh, for a little icing on the cake here, uh, to address the mechanism, which I know they want there at DevCell, uh, they showed that if they knocked out LEF1 and TBX3, uh, which are placode regulators essential for uh, mammary gland formation, they result in impaired differentiation or gener a generation of those memos. So uh, they cover a lot of bases here, I think with the bottom line being that they're able to generate the constituents of the mammary gland and show that they can function in vitro, which is to say form, 
make milk proteins um, and that they're able to reconstitute the mammary, mammary gland in, in vivo. Uh, and I, I think it's exciting. I mean, there's a lot of uh, biotechs out there, not a lot, but a few biotechs that are going after uh, making milk um, from human cells as an alternative to formula. I don't know that this will, will make that because, you know, I talked about this a lot with my wife. She's really insane. She said, you're a stem cell scientist. Go start a company where they make milk. I tell her it's not that simple. She is not buying it. But the, the bottom line when I looked into it is that milk from the breast is not just about the casein, the milk proteins. It's all the fats and the hind milk and the formic and all that stuff. So I don't know that we're going to have a surrogate for formula just yet. But understanding the developmental process and the cells that comprise this and coming up with a protocol is step one. Yeah, this is one of the cooler studies that I've seen over the last while, in part because, like what you're talking about, that functional validation of these things, right? This actually reminds me of some of the cerebral spinal fluid organoids that um, Madeline Lancaster, I think, developed. Anytime you can get these organoids to make the things that they're supposed to make, I think that that's that's got, a, I guess, a popular science sort of phenotype to it, but it's just also really cool. You know, those cerebral spinal organoids are making cerebral spinal fluid. That's what they're supposed to make. And these things are making milk. And I need, I mean, I agree with you. I think down the road, uh, maybe you can mass produce these things to actually make enough milk ex vivo for whatever application. We're definitely not there yet. I don't think this is going to be translational in any way anytime soon. But it is a really cool technology for nothing, if nothing else, for sort of the basic science of understanding how these developmental processes actually happen. Um, I mean, it's not without its own limitation, though, that they say it themselves here in the limitation section. They these memos, as they call them, have a lot of heterogeneity and also a really big time frame for differentiation. This is one of those uh, six month long differentiation protocols which is, you know, as a trainee, can be pretty frustrating to work with. But, you know, you, you can't argue with, again, the downstream functional output of these things in terms of the milk production to some extent. Um, but they also allude to that they saw variability in organoid production efficiency from different mouse embryonic stem cell lines. So maybe there's some sort of genetic factors there when it comes to the, the efficacy of making these things. But nonetheless, I think just a really cool model system that can be built upon. Absolutely. I just want to clarify, not six months, the, the, the assay, I guess they do go out to six months in some of these, um, but the assays where they were showing productivity and function was at 30 days. So it's not insane, but you know, I will then remind, circling back to my first roundup story that this is mouse. So um, the timescales for human would likely be much longer. Um, and yeah, as you said, the heterogeneity, this is a, a approach where they kind of they differentiate in a in a in a blob, right? And then they, after the fact, they look at the single cell seek and, and show that all these constituent cell types are there. Um, but it's not, you know, a purified cell type. It's not clean like you would get with these monotypic organoids, like intestinal organoids, for example. It's not as clean. Um, so some limitations there for sure. Not least of which being that this isn't a mouse, and we got to see how it works for human because who cares about freaking mouse breast milk, right? But the um, the the extension of this, I don't think, is necessarily going to be a cut and dried clinical application or like industrial application for making milk, which is why it's a, a dev cell story. Um, and I don't want to set it up like that. I, I apologize to the authors for making it about milk because that's not what they're going for at all. To be clear, 
Um, uh, so yeah, I just want to underscore uh, that this is a developmental study that sheds light on a window that we really haven't had much understanding of, and that's the, the developmental ontogeny of the mammary gland and constituent cell types. Um, so a, a big step forward, and that's why you'll find it in DevCell, my friend. Absolutely. We're big fans of DevCell here on the show, as listeners have heard <laughs> us harp on for the many recent episodes. We love DevCell. A bunch of great mechanistic developmental stories happening all the time there. So don't don't forget to check out DevCell. Moving on to another cell family journal, Cell Stem Cell, of course. This is a the last roundup paper for this week. Um, this is, again, a, a nice basic study with a lot of downstream applications, and it's unraveling the mysteries of reprogramming. <laughs> and here we are in 2024, Happy New Year, uh, where we're still learning a lot about reprogramming and how it can be made even more efficient. But not just naive, not just prime reprogramming, but naive reprogramming, which is this new high, you know, higher order state that I think a lot of stem cell biologists are striving for across different species where iPSCs derive. So this is a paper titled Highly Cooperative Chimeric Super Socks Induces Naive Pluripotency Across Species. This is, a, I think, a really useful tool developed uh, jointly by Hans Scholler and also Sergey Velchenko. First author here is Caitlin McCarthy over there at the, the Max Planck, but also uh, some folks at Harvard had a hand in this as well. We're talking about reprogramming, like I said, and we're talking about SOX, SOX2 in particular, which is one of those master regulators of the reprogramming process in combination with OCT4, as we know. And uh, the, the rationale, I think, is pretty straightforward. We want to make iPSCs and, and naive iPSCs from a broader range of species, okay? The iPSC lines that we derive in general, uh, well, you know, they are artificial. They're an artifact. They're iPSCs, pluripotent stem cells don't exist in real life, right? But we also just want to make these derivation processes better, okay? So what they did here is supercharged, I mean, in their words, supercharged SOX2, one of the critical transcriptional regulators of the programming process in the pluripotency network. Um, so they actually swapped, they did some really cool protein manipulation here. They swapped some structural elements between SOX2 and a an evolutionary analog, SOX17, and built this chimeric super SOX, quote, factor SOX217. That ultimately, after validating that this thing is what it's supposed to be, both functionally and at the protein level, uh, ultimately it enhanced iPSC generation in five different species that they tested, mouse, human, cytomologous monkey, cow, and pig. And, you know, mind you, the iPSCs have been derived from all of these species. I think the cool thing that maybe would have taken this paper even further to the next level and beyond is if they were able to derive iPSCs from a species that hasn't had iPSCs derived from before. Okay. Uh, I think that would have been really exciting. Maybe they're working towards that. But regardless, um, you know, diving a little bit deeper into it, they basically did this swap of alanine to valine, a single amino acid change at the interface between SOX2 and uh, actually OCT4, of course, another major regulator of pluripotency. And then this ultimately delivered a gain of function by stabilizing SOX2 and OCT4 dimerization on the DNA itself, enabling the generation of higher quality uh, OSKM iPSCs capable of supporting, and this is important, capable of supporting the development of healthy all iPSC mice. Okay, so you need that 
validation of the generation of live animals, which is, you know, tetraploid complementation, the the validation of one of the definitive validations of, of IPS production, right? And so the SOX2 OCT4 dimerization actually emerged as a core driver of naive pluripotency with its levels diminished upon priming, as you might expect. And one other thing that they did was a, a transient overexpression of an SK cocktail, that's SOX uh, plus KLF4, the super SOX plus KLF4, which restored the dimerization between SOX2 and OCT4 and ultimately boosted the developmental potential of pluripotency stem cells across the five species and ultimately what what they want to establish here or at least you know push along is this idea of having a universal method for deriving naive pluripotent stem cells at high efficiency across mammalian species this is something i think really really worth striving for um, one of the major limitations of our field our modern field in general is just that the 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 iPSCs that we have in general one are primed and two only from a limited subset of species i think if i had to take a guess um under 15 mammalian species have had iPSCs derived from them and maybe this super socks is something that can perhaps broaden that catalog a little bit more i mean we talked about uh, folks like gene loring here about <laughs> the iPSC zoo right being able to derive iPSCs from a huge number of species for conservation processes, conservation um, applications. And maybe 15 is actually a little low. Maybe it's a little bit higher than that. Um, but nonetheless, I think being able to universally derive iPSCs and naive iPSCs from every mammalian species is something worth striving for. Absolutely. And uh, I think this is it. I, I my, my take on this is, first of all, I just want to say, wow, because I, I don't, I, I wouldn't even know where you start to think about this. You know, I, I don't know that you're sitting around being like, oh, yo, I hypothesize. Let's just tweak one of the, uh, you know, Yamanaka factors and whatever. It will supercharge it. I, I wouldn't have come at it at all because I don't know that that's an unmet need, a problem that needs to be solved. Um, but hey. That's why I'm not here in, in cell stem cell sharing my amazing study with everybody. But um, I would say uh, from that standpoint, I think what what's under underlies that is that we've we've made so many, so many ways to make IPS cells. I think the deep inside, you know, the kid inside me, the scientist inside me is like, wow, this is an impressive mechanism. We need this. Now we can make IPS zoo, et cetera easy, industrial, straightforward. Uh, but the kid in me is like, I'm, I'm not, I've, I've, I've lost interest in another way to make IPS cells. That said, not throwing shade at all, because I want to underscore what I think is the biggest and most impressive thing about this is that it opened the door to this approach of engineering these reprogramming factors. And unlike you know, induced pluripotency, where there's like literally a hundred ways to get to an iPS cell. There's a lot of cell type targets, namely hematopoietic stem cells, anybody where like we really don't have the recipe. And there've been a lot of approaches that are maybe a little, they're like halfway there or they get reconstitution, but the cells don't form a lineage or whatever it is. Um, and for me, the, the real re revelation here in terms of concept is, wow, let's try this with some of these hard to achieve cell types 
uh, where we've been struggling. Um, and, and maybe we can, we can, you know, change the game that way. Also a good time to note over the new year slipped through the cracks, but someone got highly engrafted with hematopoietic stem cells, uh, Arun from just like EBs. So I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, we didn't get a chance to talk about that, but I bring it up because that's now 40 years on. Uh, com combine that with a supercharged engineering approach like this, and maybe we could make a, a lot of headway towards uh, something that I never thought we'd see see uh, the finish line on. So that's my takeaway. Not saying it's boring. Want to be clear? Just saying that I'm not that interested in the IPS aspect of it as much as the engineering aspect and the molecular biology. Don't be a hater, Daylon. But I agree with you. I think the engineering part of this is really cool. Maybe we think it's cool because we don't do it. Um, but yeah, just being able to modify a single amino acid and getting this supercharged transcription factor as a result, that is applicable, like what you're alluding to across the board. You know, there's so many master regular transcription transcription factors, not just important for pluripotency, reprogramming, but differentiation into blood lineages, cardiac lineages, whatever. And if you can just, if it's, I'm not saying it's easy, but if it's just as simple as modifying a single amino acid to get a supercharged binding in this transcription factor, then I feel like this is something that we should be doing more universally, don't you think? Oh man, yeah. We, not me, but these guys for sure. Because as you said, it can't be easy. That's what where I'm like, how do you start? I know it's not as ways, but like there's a lot of amino acids to choose from. Why? Why do you alanine that one up, my man? Um, anyway, uh, a lot, a lot there. Uh, I wouldn't know where to start. And Arun thinks it's easy. So clearly that's why we're hosting this show and not doing the work. Um, but maybe we can have Olivier uh, reflect on that in just a minute before we get there. Have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Do you work with skeletal muscle progenitor cells? The Stem Cell Technologies Human MyOcult Workflow supports your muscle research from start to finish, allowing you to derive, expand, and differentiate human skeletal muscle progenitors. You can also expand mouse myogenic progenitors using the mouse MyOcult expansion medium. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash myocult. All right, everybody, with us on the show today, we have a scientist who's made a major imprint, uh, not only on our understanding of pluripotent stem cells and modeling using those cells, but also just basic development of biology, major imprint, uh, a lot of impact from our guest today, Dr. Olivier Porquier, who is Frank Burr Mallory Professor of Pathology and Professor in the Department of Genetics at Harvard Medical School, also Professor of Pathology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Porquier's lab is interested in the development of the vertebrate musculoskeletal axis using chicken and mouse embryos as model systems. Members of his lab combine developmental biology and genomic approaches to study patterning and differentiation of the precursors of muscles and vertebrae. Dr. Porquet, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for being here, Dr. Porquet. You know, just side note, it's been, uh, it's great seeing you in person. We've had a couple of chats, you may not remember, a while back when I was a postdoc in the Seidman lab just down the road from your lab at uh, HMS Genetics over there in new research building. Um, so I've been watching what your lab has been doing for a few years now. Of course, you've been studying musculoskeletal development, as Daylon said, and you've evolved your model systems over the years. And the collaboration that we had briefly was actually in the context of pluripotent stem cells. So it was really cool to see that 
continue to be fleshed out. Uh, traditionally, as Dalen mentioned, you use the chicken and mouse embryos, of course, standard model systems for studying development, but also more recently, these pluripotent stem cell-based systems. And we'll talk more about the, the pluripotent stem cell-based models in a little bit, but could you first take us back through the years and tell us what inspired you to actually start working in this area of musculoskeletal development in the first place? So I... Um... I started my uh, my career in science in uh, in the lab of uh, Nicole Ledoira, who was a very famous uh, developmental biologist who invented the QWERTY camera technique and did very uh, fundamental work on the on the neural crest development. So this was uh, in Paris uh, a few years ago, and um, and so I did my uh, my PhD with her. Uh, ironically doing mostly molecular biology work. And I was frustrated because this institute was mostly known for the developmental biology work. And I, I wanted to learn microsurgery and development of the embryo. And, and, uh, and there was um, a professor, uh, an American professor doing a sabbatical, Charlie Ordo at the time was uh, studying somite development. And, uh, and I teamed up with Charlie and we started. Uh, so he taught me uh, what he was doing about transplanting somites and so on. And so I became more and more interested in these structures, which give rise to the musculoskeletal system. So, and then quickly I bifurcated uh, to segmentation to try to understand the problem of segmentation. But that's, that's how I started in the, in the somite field. Yeah, uh, the young, young uh, scientists like Arun and many others may not recognize this, but like the stem cell field was actually created by developmental biologists. And I was about at the, the, the I would say, you know, the tail end of that transition from developmental biology to pluripotent stem cells and their, you know, tremendous growth uh, as a tool for developmental biology. But yeah, I, I love hearing that. And I love uh, the arc of your career because it, it takes me back to those early days where the goal really was to just, you know, take apart uh, human development using you know, other mammalian uh, uh, models uh, to try and figure out what was going on in human development. And, and pluripotent stem cells, human pluripotent stem cells were really just like a, a, an amazing new tool. And look how far we've come since there. But uh, going back again to that uh, origin there in, in basic developmental biology, one, one of your earliest papers uh, out of your own independent lab and, and the most cited, uh, which is saying something considering the hundreds of, of high impact publications that you've been a part of, um, that early paper was a cell story that linked temporal periodicity, aka this molecular clock that you're famous for, to segmentation in vertebrates. Uh, which was really important at the time. It demonstrated that there was a conservation of this mechanism between vertebrates and invertebrates in, in the fly where it was initially uh, discovered. But, you know, as, as much as I love developmental biology, I, I'm relatively naive when it comes to the clock thing. When I hear clock, I think circadian clock, uh, characterization of which led to, uh, was resulting in being awarded a Nobel Prize just a few years back. Um, so I'm betraying myself. Maybe this is a bit of a dumb question, but is is the segmentation clock linked to the circadian clock? Is it similar uh, molecular machinery that govern those two uh, fundamental mechanisms of development? So, so, so that's an interesting question. So, so the, the short answer is probably not. But uh, that said, 
in reality, it is a little, and, and it's just probably by chance because one of the canonical cyclic genes that define the segmentation plug, that is these genes that oscillate in the, in the precursors of the vertebrae and control the, the rhythmic formation of somites, and this gene is called HAS7, it, it just so happens that the gene next to it is, is PER1, which is a critical gene for the regulation of the circadian clock. And so the uh, uh, so so per one was shown recently to to oscillate in the presomitic mesoderm, but that probably doesn't have a real biological meaning. It's just because there is some sort of periodic regulation uh, in the you know in the, the genomic neighborhood and which which also entrains per one. But the the clock cycle is much faster. It's uh, say in chicken embryo, it's ninety minutes of you know compared to the twenty four hours of the second cycle. And actually, if I may just correct something, the um, uh, when we so when you say the the clock was conserved between vertebrates and, and invertebrates, it's uh, it's only partly true. And, and in fact, the first gene that we identified in the cell paper as showing the oscillations was a hairy sort of fly, uh, a vertebrate homologue of a fly payroll gene. Uh, but so so this was conserved, but it turned out that the global mechanism and this oscillator doesn't exist in flies. It's it's completely derived. Yet it does exist in other insects, it seems. So a lot of uh, insects or other arthropods appear to have a, an oscillatory system that that controls the production of segments. Hmm. So, but at the time it was uh, surprising that you know the the segmentation cascade that you alluded to that was worked out by. Uh, Usain uh, Bollard and Bichaus, um, we couldn't find it conserved in vertebrates. And, and so that's why this, this oscillator was uh, really came as a surprise in the field because it was a very different padding from the, the segmentation cascade of, of Usain Bollard and Bichaus. Yeah, now fast forwarding a, a few years, uh, you're also working continuously still on this you know, segmentation area of study, but using some newer model systems. And we've really loved covering your recent somatogenesis modeling work here on the show, including your recent nature study of reconstruction and deconstruction of human somatogenesis in vitro using PSCs, pluripotent stem cells, and some really cool reporter systems as well. HES7, I think, was one of the, the reporters that was in that particular paper. Could you tell us a little bit more about this particular work um, using the pluripotent stem cells as a model for somatogenesis and how these somatoids and segmentoids can help us better understand the earliest stages of human development specifically. So, so you know, somat somatogenesis in humans takes place between three and four weeks post-fertilization. So it's a time when most women don't even know they're pregnant. So there's virtually nothing which is known, particularly at the molecular level. Now, we don't know whether there is a, a segmentation clock, if it worked like in other mammals, even though there are some hints, like for instance, the fact that um, uh, in humans, the very severe uh, malformations of the uh, vertebral column, which are called congenital scoliosis, were shown to be uh, uh, resulting from recessive mutations of genes associated to the segmentation clock, so suggesting that the mechanism might be conserved. But um, so we've been working on, on model organisms like chicken and, and mouse embryos for many years, but then it was becoming difficult to 
move forward and dissect further the mechanism using genetics because we just don't have the right uh, uh, precision in terms of spatial temporal control for, for the experiment. And moreover, it's, it's a very tiny tissue, so it's very difficult to have access to enough material. So indeed, the, the dream uh, when we started was to be able to uh, set up a system in which we could differentiate cells of the presomitic mesoderm in vitro and recapitulate uh, the normal sequence of events, you know, with the hope maybe to, to recapitulate even the segmentation clock. And, and so we did, and in fact, it's, it's work I started quite a while ago when I was at the Stowers Institute. We started first with uh, mouse embryonic stem cells and then developed protocols based on our understanding of the development of the presomitic mesoderm in the embryo. And then we transferred this to human uh, uh, embryonic stem cells, in fact, to human IPS, and, um, and first developed uh, uh, a 2D system with uh, Margrethe Diaz-Quadros, a very talented PhD student in the lab, now has her own lab at, at MGH. And so what we did was to um, develop a system where we could image the oscillations of the segmentation clock in 2D. And so Margrethe did that and she showed, so she identified uh, the, the, the oscillator, showed that it had a, a period of five hours and so on, which was a, a, a real feat for us and uh, was the culmination of uh, many years of work. And, and now finally we had a 2D system where we could uh, uh, generate as many cells, oscillating cells as we wanted and we could start also to manipulate these cells with CRISPR-Cas9 which, uh, which allowed to generate reporters and, and mutants uh, much, much, much faster than, than in a mouse. And so after we, we'd done this work, so I had a, another outstanding uh, uh, postdoc in the lab, uh, Yuchuan Yao, who started to become interested in developing 3D uh, uh, systems. And, um, and he first started by developing a, a system which um, was quite unusual in the sense that it, it was making a 3D aggregates of presomitic mesoderm and then seeded these aggregates in a dish so that they would form a pseudo uh, uh, 3D uh, explant. But what was very remarkable in these explants is that he quickly uh, realized that they were forming epithelial rosettes very much resembling like solmites. So in other words, this, this system was able to make uh, unlimited amounts of human somites in vitro, which was uh, uh, an ideal system to, to study the, the process of somitogenesis in humans. So, so this system has no uh, spatial organization. It's purely temporal. So all the cells in the plates are at the same developmental time and, and they develop synchronously. But then he developed a second system, uh, which we call segmentoids, where did a similar approach forming aggregates of presomitic mesoderm and putting them in matrigel, and, and which is something that was pioneered by, by Martinez Arias for the gastroids. And then this led to an elongation of the structure. And uh, so it, it really recapitulated the normal anteroposterior axis, uh, formed somite at one extremity, had neuromesodermal precursors like are found in the tail body embryos. So it really looked like a freshly microdissected presomitic mesoderm from a, a mouse embryo. This was absolutely spectacular. And uh, especially for, for, 
it was a bit ironical for me uh, because I spent uh, a chunk of my career or the beginning of my career studying the role of the surrounding tissues on the development of the praxial mesoderm. And here we are, we, we just drop a ball of stem cells in matrigen and it forms without any surrounding tissue, it forms perfect somites, which are normally polarized. And it's still very mysterious how you can achieve uh, such a, a level of auto-organization to me, because it, frankly, it's, it's almost perfect. Yeah, I mean, I, I recall, I remember, I was in the room uh, when Yu Chuan Mao uh, presented that work at the ISSCR 2022 in San Francisco. And I remember it vividly because it, it, I mean, it was a watershed in my career. I had never seen anything like it. Um, and no exaggeration, transformative, because it, it's as you alluded to, the, the, the degree of spatio-temporally coordinated morphogenesis and, and the fidelity of it to the real physiological soma. I mean, that's as you said, it looked like I was wa watching a, an explant for an embryo. Um, and, and perhaps more importantly, as you alluded to in the tail end there, it was this pluripotent stem cell system that was decoupled from, it was organogenesis decoupled from embryogenesis, right? You just said it, so no surrounding tissue, just this little modular differentiation package you throw in there and it auto or self-organizes. So. Um, for me, that was amazing. And a year later, at this past summer's ISSCR in Boston, blown away again by a similar idea in self-organization with the human embryo modeling, which, you know, people had, had talked about the mouse embryo, but the human, I think, really made it next level uh, as the segmentoids you showed with using human cells. It's what we've always wanted to do since the beginning is get a peek into human development, right? Um, and, you know, these studies are only continuing to grow and be applied to gain mechanistic insight. Just in the last show, we talked about two stories that use these embryo models to actually ask questions. And I think that's where we're going. But just, you know, in terms of, let's say, next ISSCR 2024, what am I going to be blown away by? You talk about these kind of self-organizing modules, and you were really surprised that there's no role of the extrinsic tissue. Um, it makes me wonder, like, we're able now, the field... Uh, is able to assemble these rudiments that then kind of a snowball, like a snowball rolling downhill, can can take on the developmental momentum or Waddington's, you know, cell clusters or whatever you want to call it, and and make uh, organized tissue rudiments at least. Um, what do you think the ceiling on that is? I mean, as someone who's worked in development, you understand that scale is a real issue, right? Without perfusion. But what do you think the ceiling is in terms of us being able to recapitulate, like, I hate to call them mini organs, but like organ enlages that, that can then develop and give us insight into these primary uh, organogenic events? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. It's, it's, um, it's difficult. What, what currently it seems that one of the big roadblocks is definitely the scale-up. You know, because if you look at a human organ, it's big for most organs. And if you compare to what we do in the dish, it's still ridiculously small compared to. So, so we're really at the embryonic stage. I think in terms of producing embryonic structures, we'll be able to you know, generate most embryonic structures. I, I don't see really why this shouldn't be the case now. The next phase, the fetal development, where you have this huge amount of growth, 
something that we don't really, we haven't really started to deal with. And um, of course, for, for translational applications, for instance, it's going to be critical. Um, you could you can imagine that one way to deal with is to use surrogate hosts, for instance, because there you probably could achieve much better growth. If you could grow human organs in pigs or you know this sort of things that might be one way to go. But there also, you know, there are constantly some new bioengineering solutions or, or which may help uh, driving this growth. The, the problem clearly is going to be the vascularization, then you cannot deal with simple, I mean, you, you have to reconstitute more than one system, in fact, because the, the nutrient supply is, is becoming more and more critical as the structure is growing. Yeah, it's, you know, regardless of some of the potential limitations in my mind, it's the most exciting area of study in stem cell biology currently. I've said it before on the show, and I'll say it again, if I was a trainee in this field, once again, this is the area of study that I'd be working on. And, you know, by establishing some of these models of somatogenesis and early development, you've also been able to take a, a unique additional angle on, on the work that you're doing, and that's uh, looking at the interspecies variation in the rate of embryonic development, sort of more of an evolutionary story that you've put together over the last couple of years. You know, despite there's a relatively broad conservation of the overall sequence of developmental events, there was this nature paper that you put out from this year in 2023, where your lab established this in vitro system that can recapitulate the, the twofold difference in developmental rate between mouse and human embryos and there's a really profound metabolism story integrated into this particular story as well so could you tell us more about this recent work and you know what it might unveil about how metabolism might influence developmental differences across species so this is um i mean that started it's a question that i've been in my i've had in my mind for for a long time because working on clock you think about time if you think about somatogenesis, the period of the oscillation of the clock is species specific, and it's plugged into the uh, the developmental rate. That is, the species that develop fast have a fast oscillation of the segmentation clock. The species which develop slowly have a slow period of the oscillation. So there's a scaling between these uh, these two quantities, and um, and. And, and the question of developmental timing is a very fascinating one. I mean, I, I usually I show a picture um, in, in seminars where uh, which compare in the same dish a six-week human embryo with a four-day chicken embryo. And people, the people I've shown this, the, the actual dish, you know, before taking the picture, were not able to tell me which was which. And what what this says is that you can achieve exactly the same morphogenesis at 37 degrees, so very similar conditions, but at a completely different pace between species. And so what controls this is, is very, very unclear. And so, so with Margrethe, we, we, we decided to use our uh, in vitro system, the system she developed for, for human and, and mouse uh, oscillations in vitro, and use this as a proxy for time. To, to see how we can challenge the system and see what control the regulation of this, uh, uh, the, the period of these oscillations. And so what she found is that uh, the metabolism is a critical element of this regulation and particularly 
uh, the, the energy metabolism in the mitochondria. And what was surprising is that it didn't seem to be uh, directly linked to ATP production, even though it implicated the electron transport chain machinery, but rather uh, the redox status of the cells and more the, um, the, the, the ratio of NAD over NADH uh, in the in the mitochondria and in, in the cells, so so this was really um, a surprise and uh, and uh, and really interesting. And, and there she did an experiment, which to me was uh, the killer experiment that I, I you know I wouldn't think would be possible, which was to uh, show that you can accelerate the period of the oscillations because you know often slowing down. Is, is not enough because you can make the cell sick and you can find all kinds of criticism. But to try to accelerate the developmental time and hence the, the clock, and she did so by overexpressing uh, a bacterial enzyme called the LBNOX, which is able to uh, oxidize NADH, so it bypasses the entire electron transport chain. And so in this way, it increases the ratio of NAD and NADH in, in, in the cell. And, and she showed by infecting the oscillating cells with uh, this expressing uh, LBNOX expressing viruses able to accelerate the clock. I think this was a, this was really a, a very cool experiment because that's the only one I know of where you have a significant acceleration of the clock. And then she linked it to the regulation of translation because the, the, the very striking thing with uh, this, this regulation of developmental timing is that it's a global regulation. So another example would be if you take chicken embryos, take them from the incubator, put them on the bench, they will stop developing. If you put them back in the incubator, they will resume developing. If you change the temperature, they will slow down. But it, it remains, the system remains harmonious, which means that all the chemical reactions that are important for growth and morphogenesis remain coordinated. And that's, that's pretty mind boggling, but so you have to find about global systems like translation, redox, and uh, metabolism. I think to, to explain this. Yeah, I, I that story, and I mean the series. I think of, of stories that you're telling along those lines were so mind-boggling as you describe it to me. Because it's one thing to note and describe a phenomenon that you know takes place over the course of evolution. We've evolved to have these different uh, time scales uh, across different species. But as you said, that killer experiment where you can actually intervene and change that pace. And I think all of us in the field really recognize the power of that idea because it, it shows that, you know, the the developmental time scales that maybe have been a hindrance in, in generating the cell types that we want of the maturation state that we want. Uh, while that has been a challenge, it's not an intractable challenge. It may be overcome and it may be the chemistry and metabolism that allows us to get there. So I think this is another point of evidence. I'm not drawing a direct parallel. Like this is the method to get, you know, mature heart cells, cardiac cells, or, or advanced stage neurons or anything. But the concept for me at the time was a big deal because it showed that it wasn't some static thing. It was something that could be changed. And I think that's an important result. Very deep. Uh, pulling back a little bit, I don't want to say superficial, but not as like Evo Devo. I, I want to shift gears a bit to the story, metabolism related, but only adjacently about uh, brown fat. You had this dev cell paper describing the ontogeny of brown adipose tissue in mice. 
um, which was kind of unknown how it came, how, where it came from and how. Um, and then built on that to generate this, uh, develop this novel protocol for differentiating human pluripotent stem cells to brown adipocytes. Of course, I mean, if, if you know anything about brown fat, you know it's derived from paraxial mesoderm, which has been the focal point of your research for going on three decades now. So that it's clear, like, I wouldn't want to call it low-hanging fruit or anything, but it was in your wheelhouse. So I could see why you're looking at brown adipose tissue. But what else uh, motivated this study in terms of rationale? And how do you envision protocols for brown fat differentiation that you developed? How do you envision them being applied, either academically toward basic insight or translationally, perhaps? Yeah, so, so there was a little bit of serendipity here in the sense that uh, Jérôme Chal, who's a, the postdoc, developed the, uh, the initial protocols on, uh, on, uh, to, to make um, uh, paxomesoderm and, and muscle stem cells, um, observed that by tweaking a bit the, um, uh, the conditions of the muscle uh, differentiation, he was uh, seeing some fat cells in the dish. And then we realized that... Um, there's been work from uh, uh, Patrick Sion and Bruce Bigerman showing that uh, brown fat had the same origin as the skeletal muscle. So they derive from the same PAC7 expressing precursors. And so we said, well, that looks really interesting. We should optimize the protocol to, um, to try to differentiate uh, uh, more efficiently brown fat because brown fat is a lineage which is poorly understood. So the its development has not been very well characterized in, in the embryo. And it's uh, it's very uh, interesting lineage. It's it's involved in thermogenesis. So what it does is it burns glucose and lipids to generate heat. And so, you know, we felt that uh, first developing, improving this protocol and, and being able to produce large amounts of brown fat would be interesting to better characterize its, its physiology, but also um, from a translational standpoint, because uh, as I said, it's very important for the regulation of the metabolism and the glycemia because it burns uh, glucose. And, and there is some uh, interesting evidence showing that uh, in humans, the amount of brown fat is correlated to the, the probability to develop cardiometabolic disease. So some, some really nice work from Paul Crane's lab. And so, so we decided to now to rationalize a bit more the, the process in that we first performed a developmental series. So taking the brown fat region in the mouse embryos at, at different times, doing single cell RNA sequencing, and then extracting all the signaling cues that were uh, deployed during the differentiation of this lineage using, using you know, classical machine learning approaches uh, in the field. And, and then we transpose the, all this knowledge in vitro and, and uh, optimize the, so, so the, the muscle protocol now uh, trying to push the cells toward the brown fat fate. And, and we were uh, successful in doing so. And, and then we showed that the, the cells were functional. They were able to produce heat and, and so on. But um, what was really striking, which is not uh, uh, yet... Um, part of this study is that we've also been able uh, recently to show with uh, David Piston from uh, WashU, who uh, studied the role of brown fat in the regulation of, of glycemia and diabetes. So what, what they've done was to take uh, mouse embryonic brown fat and graft it into 
mice that were injected with streptozotocin to cure the beta cells and, and thus you know, to use this as a model of type 1 diabetes. And what David had shown is that uh, uh, if you do so, what happens is that you can uh, rescue normal glycemia in these mice by grafting ground fat. And these mice have no insulin, so it's a bit uh, mysterious. They, they, that reduces the glucagon levels, but how it works in detail is not fully understood. And then we teamed up with David and showed that when grafting organoids of brown fat developed according to our protocol, uh, in these mice, we, we could also see the same phenotype, a rescue of, um, of normal glycemia in the mice. And so what we, where we want to go from there is, is uh, see if we can develop cell therapy approaches for uh, uh, metabolic disease in, in, in humans to, to uh, you know, to, to transplant brown fat into patients that have diseases like type 2 diabetes, for instance. Wow. Yeah, it's a really unique study and one with some translational potential as well. And uh, side note, the first author of that dev cell paper, Jyoti Rao, was actually the postdoc who I collaborated with a few years ago in the Seidman lab. So that was really cool to see that paper come out. Um, shifting gears a little bit, you know, you talked about how you have an interest in the translational side of things. And of course, you're in Boston, Cambridge, this area that is the hub of biotech research, not just in the United States, but perhaps for around the world. So many incredible biotech startups there, uh, real translational angle to that area of the world, that area of the country. And I mean, in the spirit of many folks in the HMS Department of Genetics, you've actually recently founded a startup called Somite Therapeutics, which has a tagline of defining or redefining cell therapy with artificial intelligence. So that's very exciting. Um, honestly, there's not that much info out there about the company since it's so new, but I'm assuming it has something to do with the recent somatogenesis segmentation clock work that we've been talking about here on the show. Could, so could you give us a little sneak peek of what this new endeavor is all about? Yeah, sure. So, so, so the idea is, um, I mean, I'm, I'm convinced that uh, cell therapy is going to be the, the breakthrough of the 21st century because uh, we're, we're getting better and better at producing human cells in vitro. And there are many, many diseases where, you know, you need to, rec to, to, to uh, recreate the cells or to reintroduce the cells in the patients because they, they're gone. I mean, many, for many degenerative diseases, that's going to be the only way uh, to go. And so, so the idea here was really to use the somite production as a platform uh, to produce uh, lineages of the musculoskeletal systems for, for uh, cell therapy. And there, what we want to do is to uh, be able to optimize the protocols uh, using our understanding of the embryo, but also coupling this to uh, artificial intelligence. So we've uh, teamed up with... Uh, uh, people are very, very good at this, like our founder uh, and CEO, Miha, is coming from, uh, from this area, he's, he's been involved in uh, a serial entrepreneur who's been setting up several AI companies already. We have also um, Alan Klein, who's also an expert in, uh, in, in these uh, studies. And, so, and, and Cliff Tebin, who's the chair of the genetics department. So, so I think we're um, we, we're really a, a great team uh, when it comes to, to working on the musculoskeletal system, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun. And I think it has a lot of uh, 
there's, there's a lot of potential because currently there's no one really working in, in this area uh, in terms of cell therapy. But when you think about it, it covers the orthopedics, you know, production of cartilage, tendons, and bone. We our first focus is going to be Duchenne muscular dystrophy because we became very good at producing muscle stem cells, and we want to be able to rescue uh, small muscles like in the hand of uh, adult Duchenne patients who are, you know, basically when they lose these muscles, they lose contact with the, the world, and so that's uh, uh, tremendously improved their. Uh, uh, quality of life and also provide a, a great proof of concept that will allow us to move forward to large muscles and, and then uh, we also want to develop the brown fat applications that, that i mentioned and, uh, and and also working on tendons and, and other applications yeah i mean the scope is really really wide and and you could go on and on about you know degenerative conditions that uh, significant unmet need nih funding all that but as you also alluded to there in terms of just in improving quality of life for literally millions of people you know globally uh i think the musculoskeletal system very fertile ground for probably the most surgeries that are done in today could be addressed with cell therapies in the musculoskeletal system when you consider ortho. So yeah, uh, fertile ground. I'm really looking forward to see what comes out of that. And maybe throw me some stock. If you got some laying around, I might be into that. Uh, but more than anything, I appreciate you taking this time to chat with us about not only your career, uh, you know, what you're doing now, but what you've done. And for us, it's great to talk to icons like you who've been in it for so long and from the beginning uh, during that transition, as I talked about, from developmental biology to actual cell therapy, which is where we are now. Um, and as you said, it's the future too. The 21st century is just going to be one therapy after the other, mostly based on cells and genetic engineering. So very exciting time to be alive, uh, still alive, to maybe receive some of these therapies someday. Um, but before we let you go, I have a couple kind of peripheral questions that we like to ask. Uh, first, um, if you were not a scientist, which would be to the detriment to all humankind, if you were not a scientist, what would you be doing with yourself? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, uh, when I was a student, I was, uh, I, I like languages. So I, uh, I was debating whether enrolling in science or in uh, uh, studying Chinese. And I was really interested in uh, the complexity of the language and the, particularly the writing. Otherwise, maybe an historian or an archaeologist, which is probably also some sort of scientist. But uh... Wow, those are pretty far afield. Linguist, historian, and you ended up in science. You made the right call. Finally, before we let you go, what's the best piece of advice that you've been given, either professional uh, or not? I think to me is was an advice from uh, from Nicole Ledoir, who was my mentor uh, during my PhD. We said, she said, uh, focus on science, and you know if this goes well, then everything will go well. <laughs> That's great. That's so simple, uh, elegant, and honestly, the best advice that you could give anybody in any career. Focus on the work, right? Um, but in science in particular, I guess there's a lot of a lot of ways you can get distracted, not least of which by your own failure and uh, illusionment, right? Um, so a great piece of advice. I'm glad you passed that along. 
And again, uh, thanks, Dr. Portier. You are a legend, and uh, we really appreciate taking your precious time to share with us and our listeners. Thanks. That was a, a pleasure talking to you. All right, everybody. That brings us to the end of this episode, first of the new year. Hope it's a happy one for all of you. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on X at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. 